Toronto, Canada. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, if I push that button, this should work. Are we on the air? Hooray! <laughs> All right, welcome to our second broadcast from our new home here at Zoomerplex in Liberty Village in Toronto, Canada. And I look out my window. I'm so pleased to have a window. And uh, looking across, a sure sign of spring, not only because it's raining and the weather is uh, getting warmer, uh, but the big bubble over uh, Allen Lamport Stadium, as I look out across Liberty Street to my right, is down. Okay, they've taken the bubble down, so they're getting ready to play whatever they play over there, soccer, football. Do we know what they play at Allen Lamport Stadium, Tim? We don't know. It may be a practice facility for the the Toronto Argonauts, for all I know. I don't know, for all of you CFL fans. Anyway, uh, spring has sprung, I guess, officially. And uh, it's Palm Sunday for my Greek Orthodox friends. Had the uh, the boys uh, in their uh, in their Sunday finest today out in front of the house taking pictures, and uh, Zachary the eldest of my twins, <laughs> by two minutes, missing his front teeth. He swallowed both of them. He's very distraught about that because, of course, he wanted to save those. Uh, my mother, or my wife, rather, uh, collects those, <laughs> keeps them in a locket around her neck. It's not morbid, I don't think. It's just a loving thing she likes to do. Anyway, he swallowed both his teeth. He's very upset. Anyway, he's got lots more to come. So, welcome to the broadcast. I want to... Um, just give you a quick heads up what's coming up next week. Our media scientist friend Nelson Thal, along with uh, Miss Steele from Bloom and Steele, will be here talking about the Ten Lost Tribes of Israel and Biblical Prophecy. So you want to mark that down on your calendar. That should be a good program coming up next week. Right now, however, very happy to uh, welcome back to the broadcast Joel Skousen, who is a political scientist by training, specializing in the philosophy of law and constitutional theory. He's also a designer of high-security residences and retreats. He's designed self-sufficient and high-security homes throughout North America. However, you may know him best from this program as the publisher of a weekly news analysis service uh, entitled World Affairs Brief, in which he discusses the ongoing globalist conspiracy to undermine national sovereignty and create wars and other provocations. And uh, always a pleasure to have Joel aboard. Joel, how are you? I'm just fine. It's really good to be with you again, Richard. Well, lots going on, and uh, we like to call this segment Backstage in the Global Theater. Let's start with uh, Boston. And, of course, uh, we're now into this sort of official um, a period of mourning, official mourning uh, for the victims uh, of that horrible, tragic event. A lot of inconsistencies in the official version still remain. Uh, why don't we start? Give us an update. What, what's what's the latest that, that you're hearing about this event? Well, you know, as typical with even the Sandy Hook uh, massacre, we have a lot of false conspiracies coming out here now. And uh, one of the most pernicious is the, the claim that there really were no injuries, but all of that was a masquerade, that they were instantly dressed up in the smoke of the, uh, you know, and suddenly came out without legs. And and uh, I'm just uh, very, very upset that there was so much legitimate problems with conspiracy going on that we have to battle things that say, you know, Sandy Hook never happened, that they were all actors, and that isn't true either. Uh, it really happened. There was a cover-up by government. There were more than one shooter in Sandy Hook. Uh, one of them was on the ground with his hands down his back, handcuffed. Uh, one boy walked out of school and said that very, very plainly. And yet the government has never revealed any of these people that they took into custody around Adam Lanza. There were at least three people 
and potentially at four. Likewise, in the marathon bombing, we have a problem in the sense that the uh, video photographs of the uh, two Tsarnaev brothers, uh, Chechens, uh, uh, you know, the backpacks simply don't match. The one exploded backpack that we know is definitively part of one of the bombings. But interestingly enough, uh, the government claims to have extremely detailed information. In the indictment that they gave, they talk about watching their every move, detaching from the crowd, looking left, looking right, talking on a cell phone for 15 seconds, walking over to a barrier, putting his backpack down, walking away and turning around when the explosion, you know, it just, this is like they've got an actual, you know, side-by-side video camera going on with these two brothers constantly. How would they have gotten, how would they have gotten such detailed footage? Well, there was one camera that was looking down from the Forum restaurant through an overlooking glass window. In other words, the window was a pop-out window. And the camera was looking down toward the where the tables were in the outside portion of the restaurant. And so you would have been able to see that kind of detail. The problem is that I have with this is the government never produced that video. Uh, you know, I find it, as I pointed out in the World Affairs Brief, I find it very difficult that any prosecutor would would write down this kind of detail and not be able to show that evidence to the court unless, as I said, he's already determined that the government plans to use the State Secrets Act to deny or to get it sealed. And they have numerous judges that they can lean on to make sure that it does get sealed. We have that happening in the JFK assassination. They sealed up the autopsy results. They sealed up the brain uh, so that nobody could examine it. It happened with uh, you know Martin Luther King. They sealed up his records for 50 years so that no one could tell his communist connections and his gross immorality. The <laughs> FBI has 13 file cabinets full of pornography as they tracked him in prostitutes uh, throughout his lifetime. I mean, a massive hypocrite. So this is not atypical that the government can get away with this. But I think the purpose of putting out such a specific narrative to the public as they couldn't possibly be lying. It's too specific. Well, now, the, the videos, sorry, Joe, but ahead. the videos and the pictures that you've seen, uh, again, I want to talk about those backpacks that the uh, Tsarnaev brothers were wearing. You're saying those backpacks they were wearing that supposedly contained the explosive devices don't match the ones, the, the remnants of the ones that were discovered on the ground. That's correct. The one that was discovered on the ground had black shoulder straps and a white strip of cloth in the middle of the shoulder of each shoulder strap, and it had a square white patch on the top of the pack. The the older Sarnayev brother has a grayish pack, no white stripes anywhere, no white patch. It's very clearly seen in the in the video. The the younger Sarnayev brother has a white or light colored pack with a few black stripes. Simply doesn't match at all. So if the government is saying that they have videos of them laying their backpack down and those backpacks exploded, then now they have to explain how come those backpacks do not match, and I repeat, do not match the exploded backpack which has been introduced into evidence. Joel Skousen is with us. problem, too. Neither backpack appears to be bulging sufficiently to account for a huge pressure cooker, which is at least 10 inches in diameter. It just... It's unbelievable. There's a pressure cooker in those packs. 
now, the, the one thing that I have put in the brief, this last week's brief, that is original with me is the analysis of the fuses and the triggering mechanism. Right, and right. There is a lot, of, a lot of back and forth on what was the triggering, uh, triggering device. Was it a cell phone? Was it the remnants of a, a, a remote control a car, like a child's toy? What was the triggering device? Well, it had to be something sophisticated, but it doesn't match anything that the government is saying. For example, the government keeps saying that the, they had green-colored hobby fuses in these bombs. Well, a hobby fuse requires a match or a hot glowing source to ignite. It's almost impossible to devise a radio-controlled, using a remote-controlled car, toy remote, which communicates with the car with radio waves, and then it actuates the circuitry, the motor, to go backwards and forward and reverse, turn around or spin. But there's no mechanism in a toy remote car controller to strike a massive spark or a flame that's going to light a green fuse. Now, it's even more difficult to do that with a, a cell phone. This is high technology to be able to intervene, open up a cell phone without ruining it, and get it to have a trigger which has to be attached to an electronic blasting cap. And in these now, surveillance videos or wherever these videos uh, come from that we've seen, you, we see... Uh, one of the Tsunarev brothers speaking on his cell phone just moments before the blast, correct? That's right, and they say 18 seconds. Well, if you're going to trigger something with a cell phone, it doesn't take 18 seconds talking on the cell phone. You simply dial the phone number and it goes off, period. There's no reason to put it to your ear at all unless you want to fake something. But the point is, from the time he puts it to the ear, there's 18 seconds before the bomb goes off. So that doesn't appear as if he triggered it, because he couldn't have triggered it when it was on his ear, and if he triggered it before he put it to his ear, why the 18-second delay? What about, some sort of a, what, some, what about some sort of a clock timer? Now, a clock timer has the same problem. You can trigger, with a battery and a clock timer, you can trigger an electronic circuit which can ignite an electronic blasting cap, but you can't strike a match with it. You have the same problem. And it's extremely difficult and not reliable to ever have a match involved or some kind of flame igniter involved in electronic science. Why would you go to all that trouble when you can get blasting caps that are electronically ignited? So you see, what I'm saying is it looks more and more like these brothers were part of a terrorist group that was handled by FBI agent provocateurs. And they use more sophisticated things than these boys are capable of doing. But these boys were fingered to take the blame. Joel Skousen from World Affairs Brief with us here on the uh, Conspiracy Show. Joel, there were um, uh, pictures, videos of other people hanging around, uh, wearing fatigues uh, with a um, what appeared to be a, a ball cap with the a Navy SEAL insignia. On it, the, uh, the, well, that's the, actually the Punisher insignia. This is a comic book character called the Punisher, and Navy SEALs and Special Forces have adopted that as it's kind of a skull with three long lines underneath the skull. It's called the Punisher, but it comes from a comic book character. And yes, these people were, there were quite a few of them around. We've identified three teams. These are National Guard members, part of CST teams. Um, the civilian service teams, and uh, they do high-tech 
analysis of weapons of mass destruction. That's their only purpose. They're trained. That's why one of them pulled out a handheld radiation monitor to be able to check immediately after the explosion went off whether there was radiation. He was checking to see if there was a dirty bomb. I believe the backpacks these people had on, they were uh, navy blue, dark navy blue or black jackets or shirts with khaki pants and khaki boots. Everyone in the same uniform. This is, by the way, the same uniform that Secret Service uses when they're on civilian duty. Uh, it's the same uniform that various other federal services, so it's no strange thing that the uh, National Guard took up that particular uniform. Joe, let me just jump in here. We're going to take a time out. We'll come back and we'll okay. talk about these uh, individuals wearing the fatigues, wearing the the Navy SEAL uh, cap or whoever it was. What were they doing there? Joel Skousen, World Affairs Brief, backstage in the Global Theater, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. I want all of you to get up out of your chairs. I want you to get up right now and go to the window, open it, and stick your head out and yell, I'm as mad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! I'm mad as hell! I'm not going to take it anymore! Keeping an eye on the New World Order... This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. Taking a peek backstage in the Global Theater with Joel Skousen, who is the publisher of World Affairs Brief. Joel, before we continue talking about the Boston Marathon bombing, how do people subscribe to World Affairs Brief? They can go to my website, worldaffairsbrief.com, and there's a big uh, subscribe button that takes you to registration. There's a modest uh, fee, $48 a year, for my World Affairs Brief to support my work. But people can also get a free sample issue by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com, and I'll be happy to send them this current brief that we're talking about that has my entire analysis of what we know now about the Boston Marathon. It's my update issue of last Friday. And they get that delivered basically right into their inbox of their email uh, account uh, every That's week. Correct. Every week, a PDF right. version, which yeah. you can... Or if uh, they want privacy, they can just log into the website and download it as well, either way. All right, worldaffairsbrief.com, and uh, right there on the homepage you'll see subscribe. All right, now, these... Uh, first of all, where are you getting your your um, your evidence? Are people sending you photographs? I mean, it seems like everybody was taking photographs uh, in the immediate aftermath. Are, are, who? How are you? You know, cobbling well, all this the together. The world is a, is awash with evidence now. The only thing that's not out there is what the government claims they have, and that's very very strange. I'm just, there's just no reason to do that. If they claim that this is an ongoing investigation so we can't reveal this evidence to the defense, they've already revealed, you know, uh, half of, uh, of the evidence. In, uh, do you understand what I'm saying? <laughs> Not entirely, but I mean, I mean the, the, the important thing what is I'm here... What I'm saying is the, the, the FBI has purposely put out there on the web uh, photos of the brothers and said, we don't want you to look at anything else but these photos. These are the people of interest that we have, and they talk about their backpacks, they talk about the explosion, but they don't give us the evidence that proves the guilt. Right. But they right. are giving evidence that prove, proves partial guilt, you see. Right, right. And so they cannot use the excuse that we can't let this out because this is an ongoing. You've already let out, you know, half of it. You just haven't let out, let out the conclusive half. 
you see. All right, so let's go back to these uh, individuals that were seen wearing fatigues, what appeared to be that Punisher ball cap, uh, which, have, which has been adopted, as you say, by Navy SEALs and, and Secret Service and, and so forth. What do you think they were doing? Well, clearly they were there because they were to analyze the bombing when it went off. This is strong evidence that the government knew that a bomb was going off. Why else would you bring in bomb analysis teams, three of them? One from New York, one from Massachusetts, and, and a picture of the guys running around and the ones with backpacks, uh, you know. We've been able to look at the actual faces of those individuals and match them to the National Guard outfit, the CST team in Massachusetts. It met, it's a perfect match. That we've, we've got them ID'd. Alistair, so, uh, sorry, uh, was it Alistair Stevenson? Or Alistair Stevens, the coach for the uh, cross country team uh, from Mobile. Mobile right. Yes, have we been able to? Have you been able to verify uh, what he said to be true? That that he saw dog bomb sniffing yeah, dogs. There's, there's two public interviews that he's given confirming the same thing. So I have no doubt that you know. And what he said was, they said this was an exercise, but more importantly. He saw snipers on the roof. He saw various police. You see, that's not necessarily a problem to have increased police presence. That isn't telling. That isn't a, a smoking gun issue. What is a smoking gun issue is that they were using loudspeakers, megaphones to announce to people, this is an exercise. Do not be concerned. This is an, and then the city of Boston denies that there was an exercise. Now, why would they do that when hundreds of people heard those megaphones announce that this is a drill, this is an exercise. The reason is they don't want the public to put two and two together about foreknowledge of this event. That's why, you know, with all of the conspiracy theories floating around the Internet about what were these guys in khakis and navy blue jackets doing, obviously, uh, you know, working with FBI and others, what were they there for? What did they have these big backpacks on for? Uh, the government could have easily come out and said, no, oh, those were... National Guard uh, CST team members, which are chemical, biological, radiological, and warfare analysis, bomb analysis people. Then the question is, what were they doing there? Why did you have them there? Why did you have three teams there if you didn't know that there was going to be a bomb? Now, I'm, I'm very adamant about this because in London, they had increased police protection. In every other marathon, even before Boston, they had very much increased police protection, but never have they had specialized bomb analysis people who are there to analyze a bomb after it goes off, except in Boston. I think it's strong evidence of foreknowledge. Senator Chambliss of Georgia also said publicly on Channel 2 News of Atlanta that one of the federal agencies that he talked to did have advance warning that the bomb was going to go off. The other interesting thing was when the FBI released these uh, photos of the Sarnayev brothers, they said, we need your help. We don't know who these people are. And yet, as you pointed out in World Affairs Brief, they'd been supposedly in communication with these individuals. In fact, I believe that Sarnayev brothers' mother indicated that the FBI had been in communication with these two for, for months, even possibly years. Yeah, she said three to five years ago. Now, even if she's wrong about the five, you know, even if it's two years, the FBI started out saying it was only six months ago. They're trying to downplay this, downplay their foreknowledge of this. So it's very much like the 9-11 hijackers. We're all in the computers, 
had, had CIA backgrounds, had, um, you know, the government had used them, they'd been at military bases. The tracking of these uh, 9-11 hijackers and their connection with government is just a powerful argument of uh, this being a government operation. The fact that they knew these boys, and now we come to find out that the uncle, the one who labeled them these losers, the uncle Sarmi, you know, is married to uh, Graham, I'm trying to think, uh, the last name, anyway, a, a long-time CIA operative. For you know, He's married to his daughter. Now, so that's a very interesting thing. Now, that isn't proof of anything in and of itself any more than the fact that Alex Jones has some relatives that are in the CIA. But it is very notable that when you have a top uh, agent like uh, Graham is in the CIA and your daughter is married to a Chechen, that um, if there is any utility to be had from that Chechen, the CIA is going to make, a use, make good use of those relationships to get something going there. So we really can't tell whether anything the uncle, whose name is Sarni, is, uh, is saying, whether or not it's true or whether it's propaganda. He's tainted as far as what I'm concerned now. Joel Skousen is with us here on the Conspiracy Show from World Affairs Brief. The the actual takedown of the uh, of the Sarnera brothers, a lot of inconsistencies there. Let's start with the uh, the eldest, uh, who was supposedly. Uh, first, I think we heard that he was shot by police uh, during an altercation, and the and uh, the the brothers were throwing hand grenades at the police. Uh, walk us through some of the problems with the official version of the takedown. Well, the problem with the official version, it basically started with the, uh, the carjacking. Um, um, and, you know, it, it, there's a lot of unexplained things, why they needed another car, or, you know, they had a working car. Uh, one of the interesting things I want to point out first, though, is that the FBI contacted these boys a couple of days after the bombing. And uh, one of them called and said, you know, the feds are after us and, and we've got to get out of here. I don't know of any example where you have a federal terrorist investigation where the FBI calls up the suspect and warns them that we're coming to get you. Yes, <laughs> that's uh, that's pretty bizarre, to say and the especially least. Especially when they knew where they lived, they knew their telephone numbers, they were uh, tapping their phones, their internet uh, conversations, they knew everything about these boys. And yet they called them up to warn them, and I think here's the reason. I think they wanted these two patsies dead so that they couldn't tell anything about the wider organizations they were part of, and especially the specific personalities which may end up being agent provocateurs working for the FBI. The FBI in every single Muslim prosecution, except the Times Square bombing, which was a botched uh, you know, propane bottle job, every Muslim prosecution has been involved with an FBI informant who's much more than informant. He ends up being an agent provocateur. He's, he's goading them into actions. He gives them 9-11 truth, things to look on the Internet. He uses, to, he, he wants to excite them into hatred against the United States government. Then they plan them, they give them the equipment, they, they give them the detailed plans, and they take them all the way up to the actuation of the event, and then they arrest them. If there's ever a case of absolute entrapment, it is that kind of procedure. And I think the same thing is going on in here. But I think rather than show up and arrest them, which they could have easily done, then all of a sudden they're as responsible for the lives of the people in their custody. By putting them out on the run, by calling them in advance and scaring them into running, which is obviously what they did, they had to go get money from an ATM, they had to hijack a car, 
They wanted to switch cars, all of this stuff, and the government was tailing them every way, moved in uh, at the end, and the boys, you know, when they saw police, a couple of police cars fall, and then started to lob these pipe bombs, according to the government. And remember, this is the only information we have is from the government. We don't have any independent uh, confirmation of this whatsoever. But then the police chief of Watertown, whose name is Edward Denove, engages one lie after another, uh, talking about this massive gun battle he had with the two brothers. Come to find out now there was only one gun between them. Couldn't have been a massive gunfight. They talked about them lobbing a uh, similar pressure uh, cooker-type bomb uh, at them. And uh, then they talked about the fact that the younger brother got in a car and drove over the older brother. But a witness came forward the next day after his testimony and said it was the police who drove over the older brother. And then the police ran up and filled him full of holes. The autopsy physician said there was not one part of his body that wasn't, uh, you know, wounded. And when you see this autopsy circulated from a policeman who was gloating over this dead person, you see a great big gash from the back of his armpit all the way to the front through, across through the rib cage, cutting all the ribs. There is nothing involved with that shootout or a car hitting them that could have made this bed of this huge gaping hole uh, well, in it, this person's rib cage. Well, Joe, I then seen that. I have, I unfortunately. I did, I did see that photo, and it's true. There is this uh, enormous wound in his side, which one wouldn't expect from a, uh, from a shooting or from being run over. Uh, so, right. But then it gets really bizarre because we have that CNN footage of the police arresting someone, stripping him down naked to make sure he didn't have any explosives on him, and then basically frog-marching him naked into the back of a squad car in Watertown. Right. And, and his, and his the aunt... aunt of the, the aunt recognizes him on television says, that's Tamerlan, that's Tamerlan Sonara, that's the older brother. That's her 100%, nephew. Right. A hundred percent certain. And that means that he was in police custody at some point... Uh, and you know we don't know whether that footage was before, although that was a news footage that did that, so that uh, you know if they wanted to, they could confirm the time date stamp on that. But uh, either they had him in custody, and then somehow he got back out on the street so they could kill him, or they had him in custody after the shootout, although there's no wounds on him at this point. And in, in any case, you get into the hospital and you see that major wound and, and from head to toe and all the bullet holes in it. Something just doesn't match here with what the police are saying. I've, I've seen that CNN footage, and I have to say, just to be fair, and, and uh, I don't know if there's been any sort of face recognition uh, done on that footage, but when I look at that footage, I have to say, well, that, that could be anybody. I mean, it's hard to tell from that footage, but if you're a blood relative, who knows? I mean, wh- what, do you, what do you make of that? You've seen the footage. Can you make I out a... the footage. It, looks, it has all of the hairy facial characteristics, it has the build, it, it matches, uh, you know, you can't, it's not provable match, uh, but a, a person who really knows their nephew, like that aunt does, who lived with him very, very often, uh, and saw him swimming with his chest bare and things, said, that's Tamerlan. And uh, in, in any case, uh, the point is the government, like in Sandy Hook, is absolutely silent about these contradictions. They could easily clarify. They could easily bring forth the person that was stripped naked, put 
put him before the press and show who he is and tell who he is and so that we can see the, the recognition. They can bring forth all of this video evidence that they claim proves that they dropped their backpacks and walked away and those backpacks exploded. I want to see the video of that backpack exploding. All right, Joe, stay with us. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and my conversation with the publisher of World Affairs Brief. Don't go away. We want you to produce. You want me to produce your war? Not a war. It's a pageant. We need a theme, a song, some visuals. We need, you know, it's a pageant. It's like the Oscars. That's why we came to you. I never won an Oscar. How would you like an ambassadorship? An ambassadorship? That's my payoff. Well, you tell me what you want. Hell, I just do it for the fun of it. For a story to tell. Oh, no, you couldn't tell anyone. No, 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 I know. It's just a figure of speech. No, no, no. It's just a, it's a, it's, it's a pageant. It's a pageant. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. Joel Skousen is with us, the publisher of World Affairs Brief, worldaffairsbrief.com, and you can subscribe right there on the homepage. And it's a weekly news analysis service. Information you won't get anywhere else, certainly not in the mainstream media. We're talking about the Boston bombing, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, and I realize it's a sensitive time. We're into a sort of an official mourning period, and occasionally when these events happen and we talk about them on the air, inevitably I will get emails saying, why could you talk, how could you talk about something like this at a time like this? Or, don't you think you're, you're somehow sullying the memory of the, of the victims? And I always say, the pursuit of truth requires no explanation or no apology. Uh, the greatest thing, or the most important thing one can do in a time like this, is to search for the truth. And uh, that's all we're trying to do. Connect some dots and try to make sense out of what is a very confusing story. And Joel Skousen is here to help us do that. I want to take a couple of moments, Joel, uh, to talk about this um, uh, Ali Ab, um, Al-Harbi, the Saudi national who was supposedly uh, seen in the area of the bombing looking very suspicious. I believe he was tackled uh, by some uh, some bystanders. Uh, and then in a unscheduled meeting between President uh, Obama and the Foreign Minister of Saudi Arabia, Prince Faisal, this Al-Harbi is spirited out of the country, deported. What can you tell us about that? What's the latest on that? Well, there is no latest because the government is simply silent about it. They're the only people that know what's going on here. He was wounded in a fairly minor way in the attack, and uh, the government did go to his apartment. They did cart away several boxes of things which tended to indicate there was a body, and yet there's nothing. He was let go. He was allowed to be deported, and there's been no explanation of what they took away from the apartment. This much like the Sandy Hook, people that they haul away in handcuffs, and they never explain to the public what's going on here. Now, what I think here is happening is that the Saudis were very much involved in... Uh, in the 9-11 massacre, most of the hijackers that the government hired to do the 9-11 attack were Saudis. And Saudi Arabia has always been the major fund uh, funding source for al-Qaeda, uh, starting in the uh, Afghan war against the Soviets. And I don't think they ever lost control there. Now, the government claims, of course, that they did. But we even know that Osama bin Laden had multiple contacts with CIA people, especially before 9-11 at a, uh, at a hospital in Dubai. It was at the U.S. hospital there uh, just before 9-11. So how could that be, you know, if he was uh, arch enemy number one? But 
the Saudis have always been involved here. I think, for example, the only thing to explain how these hijackers could have learned to fly any of these aircraft was that they had practice on Saudi, Iranian, or uh, Iraqi uh, jumbo jets. You just simply cannot learn to even keep those stable uh, flying assessment. As a pilot, I can tell you that. You just simply cannot do that. Now, as a member of Pilots for 9-11 Truth, we also have copies of all the radar tracks of the aircraft when they left Boston. And uh, they made a rendezvous. Each one of the hijacked aircraft made a rendezvous. You could see the radar blips rendezvous with another blip. And as soon as they cross, it's one thing. It's not conclusive to have a blip merge with another blip as long as they keep going in the same direction. But when both airplanes do a 90-degree turn after merging in the blip, then you've got to be suspicious that an aircraft was switched there. And the, there's two pieces of evidence in 9-11 that I think are conclusive, that, in fact, that these were not the airliners filled with people. Uh, number one is that two of the airliners, the ones that hit the World Trade Center, their serial numbers were still in the FAA database two years after 9-11 until that got noised about on the Internet, and then they removed it. But those planes were still flying. Number two, there was a huge bulge on the second aircraft that hit the, the South Tower of the World Trade Center, a huge bulge on it. And they've tried to explain it away that it's just an optical illusion, but it's not an optical illusion. And I, in fact, called Boeing as a former military pilot, and I said, you know, every single major modification of an airliner has to be approved by the manufacturer. Did you approve that bulge? And the spokesperson said, no, we did not do it. She didn't say, what bulge? There's no bulge. She said, we did not do it. Amazing. That means Boeing itself knew that there was a modification. And third, I can tell you that the, every pilot is required to do a walk-around of an airplane before he accepts it and takes it. He has to actually walk around the airplane. There's no pilot in this world that would have seen that bolt on that airline and accepted that air, airliner. In other words, that bolt was not on the airliner that took off. It, let's it go back. If we could go back to Al Harbi for a moment. Uh, my understanding is that the Al Harbi name is well connected with Al Qaeda. Is that true? Yes. There are several relatives, Al Hardis, that are members of Al Qaeda. But that tells us nothing because Al Qaeda at the highest levels is a CIA operation. Right. So it means that he's part of a family who has been working with the CIA for generations. And uh, and he's a young guy. He's too young to be a mastermind in any of this. I don't hold that out as anything other than the fact that he probably knew too much and they wanted to get him out of the country. Uh, but this is, you know, many neocons have tried to make hay out of this, saying, oh, this is, a, this is another Muslim you know, bombing related to the Middle East, and they're trying to cover up uh, on that. I think what they're covering up is the wider conspiracy of which these two boys were brought into, the Tsarnaev brothers. And, um, and they're trying to pin the blame exclusively on them. I'm convinced they were part of an operation. Uh, they did have bomb-making equipment. Uh, they did buy uh, firecrackers. They did harvest the... Uh, the black powder out of those to make uh, some of these bombs, but it was part of a much larger organization. And the proof is the triggering devices. All right, let's but take a time out. When we come back, Joe, we'll discuss. We'll discuss what the end game might be here. Back with more of the conspiracy show. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Joel Skousen stays with us for a few moments yet from World Affairs Brief, worldaffairsbrief.com. That's where you can subscribe to this very unique, important weekly news service. comes to your inbox every week. And uh, we're discussing the Boston Marathon bombing, of course. Joel, let's assume for a moment, and there certainly are telltale signs, that this may have been a false flag operation. Let's assume for a moment that it was. What would be the end game here? Well, there's a couple of end games. Number one, even though these were not white male, right-wing militia, gun-wielding radicals that they could take advantage of this as they did in Oklahoma City bombing, the narrative is now turning to they acted alone. They were not radicalized by Muslims. They were radicalized by Internet websites that belong to the American right wing, in particular 9-11 Truth or Alex Jones. They're trying to pin the blame on them, essentially we people, for radicalizing them. That's one of the agendas. The other agenda is that they were able to move into Boston and shut down the entire city, put it into lockdown, without even declaring martial law. You know, a lot of people in the American right wing have been very, very worried about a lot of bogus claims about imminent martial law. And I have been one very active in debunking those, that the establishment is not going to pull imminent martial law or lock down the whole country unless it would destroy the economy and it would convince people there's a major conspiracy in government. But they didn't even have to do that. All they told people is to stay indoors. You know, the reason why we know this isn't necessary in every major city, there's at least one shootout with a criminal suspect or a high-speed chase almost every day. Do they ever lock down the city because there's a high-speed chase going on or a lockdown? Not at all. But they did, and it shows the power that a high-profile terrorist attack can have on the people of making them completely submissive to whatever government. They feel like they're doing their patriotic duty. People were rousted out of their house. They were at gunpoint, told to lay down, put their hands behind the back without a warrant, nothing. Now, it's true that government sometimes, under sake of urgency, doesn't have time to go get a warrant for every house they want to search for down the street when there's a person who's run into the backyard of various houses. The procedure is just to walk up to the house, knock on the door, and say, do we have your permission? Can we look for this guy who's, you know, seen you know, in the backyard? And most people would give their, their permission. That's the appropriate way to do that asked the permission, but they didn't do that. And there was a tremendous amount of military, high-tech military vehicle, armored cars that were brought out. I counted at least 20. And nobody had been aware that there was that much, much armament even around the Boston area. And there may not be. They may have brought it in special for this. But it was truly ominous and did bespeak of, you know, homeland security and, and local police being militarized under federal control, there's just many, many things wrong with that scenario. Do you think, then, that what they may be doing here is trying to acclimatize people to this type of situation? So, as you say, they don't have to declare martial law officially. It just happens because, you know, they're just gradually turning up the, uh, the, the heat, and people will be so used to these types of events, they won't even question it anymore when, when armed personnel come to their door demanding to come in and search the place. That's right. I think we, we're seeing an acclimation of people into a domestic terror state. And, uh, you know, for right now, it can't last very long. But even until, you know, as, as I've been predicting, 
a nuclear war in the next eight, ten years with Russia and China. If that ever happens, it's all over. They can, they'll do anything they want. People will be completely submissive to whatever they want to do. And that's what I think they're preparing for. All right, let's uh, let's go to the phones and welcome Dave, who's calling somewhere in the uh, Toronto area. Dave, welcome. Hi, Mr. Sarah. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, my question to both of you is, do you think that this obvious false flag terror will eventually spawn legitimate homegrown terror? Like the racist, the racing thing, he was just a normal guy. That all these other bigger events, just like Aurora and Sandy Hook, they have telltale signs of something else. Something's up. Do you think it'll spawn legitimate terror? Good question. Joe, what do you think? Uh, kind of rephrase the question for me, Richard. Well, Dave is wondering whether these false flag operations may also spawn legitimate homegrown terrorism. I don't believe so. There isn't anything in the right wing, either in their writing or their actions, even the most hardened militia that has anything against children, anything against civilians. They're only against this kind of government tyranny, period. And so you just simply can't make the case. I mean, that's why the Oakland City, City bombing, they had to bring in Terry Nichols, who had a right-wing background. Uh, Timothy McVeigh did not. He was uh, you know, an army guy who got uh, pulled into the CIA, the black operations. He went to his death thinking that he was doing a great favor to his country as a special CIA operative. He knew exactly what it was doing. And he had no interest in talking to anybody in the right wing. And so this was not a right-wing person. This was made to look like a right-wing attack. But I don't see any true, and I haven't seen, even up to this point, any true domestic terror, even among Muslims. Every one of them has been someone who has been loaded into it, enticed and entrapped by FBI agents of our and they have no business putting people through that kind of enticement. It's one thing to simply be in the mosque and watch and listen, when you go looking for disgruntled people and hand them 9-11 truth material, trying to radicalize them, so you can blame not only the Muslims, but now you can blame the right wing. And I think that's what we're headed for. They're going to build a period of time. They want to build a, a feeling among the people that we have to do something about these right wing people. These conspirators are causing this problem. They're radicalizing people. We're having people die because of these right wing conspiracies. And I think they want poison the people about it, that's necessary to prepare people for concentration camps someday, of turning in their fellow neighbor who believes in conspiracy. Thanks for the call, Dave. Uh, Joel, let me just, uh, one other loose thread that I wanted to talk to you about in, in terms of the Tsunarev brothers and the, I thought it was rather interesting, the reports coming out after the younger brother was apprehended, uh, that uh, there were reports that he was shot in the throat, that he shot himself, that it was self-inflicted, that someone else shot him. Uh, then we had, while he was in the hospital, reports saying that Sunarov said this, Sunarov said that, but then we heard reports that he couldn't talk. Uh, what's the latest on that? Have you been able to, to make any sense out of the, those conflicting stories? Did he shoot himself in the throat? Was it... Uh, well, he didn't because he was, he was unarmed. There was only one weapon the two brothers had, and that was captured with the older brother. So he was completely unarmed. There's no way he could have, could have committed suicide. There was no justification for riddling that boat with holes, and he would have been completely dead had he not been laying behind the inboard motor, which protected him from the bullets. But he came out of that on his own power, and then was taken down. 
you know, with a throat wound. And so, you know, I'm very suspicious that uh, he may have been shot afterwards in the throat to keep him from talking. Now, he was writing answers to the FBI, according to the Bureau, but they never read his rights. And the judge intervened and said, after reading his Miranda rights, he has not said a thing since being read his rights. So a good defense attorney is going to make all of that in Makes you wonder, though, why wouldn't they, if they took out the uh, the elder brother, why wouldn't they do the same for him? You know, dead man can't speak, and that would have made it... Yeah, too, uh, many, too many cameras on it. Too many cameras. Too many cameras. You know, if they just shot him and he went down, they'd see him shooting an unarmed man. And this isn't over yet, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure what they're going to do here with this uh, young fellow, but... Uh, so far, everything that the government is saying, we have only the government's word, is that he's admitting all of this, uh, and they're going to build the case just exactly as they want it. And there's no one that's going to be able to get to him to find out if the government is correctly reflecting his views or is making them. Joel, not that we want to instill fear or panic in people, but do you believe that if this was a false flag operation, that we're going to see sort of a ramping up of this type of activity? Are we going to see more of these high-profile terrorist activities in the United States? Well, one of the things I pointed out in the World Affairs Brief is that high-profile terror activities such as 9-11, Oklahoma City bombing, or the Boston Marathon bombing, or Sandy Hook, are indications of government terror, because if you have real terror, you have many, many more normal acts of terror. You know, we have a wide open Mexican border, people from Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan could walk across that border every day of the week and blow up electrical pylons, put explosives in railroad tanks, or do suicide bombs in malls, and nothing has happened. We've never had any of those, except ones that the government has used agent provocateurs to ferment among them Muslims here in the United States. It is interesting. As you say, in, in, in a place like Israel, where they're obviously far more acquainted with this, unfortunately, you have not daily occurrences, but certainly very frequent occurrences. People, you know, someone with a bomb steps onto a bus or, or walks into a restaurant. Not high profile in the sense of the terrorists picking high-profile targets, necessarily. So you're saying that's that that's right. an indication of a false flag operation. That's right. It's an indication plus the fact that nobody claims responsibility. The Muslim people have always claimed responsibility for their terror attacks to gain notoriety for their cause and to cause pressure to be put on the government to seize some of their demands to make some of this terror go away. None of these high-profile have ever been attached to a terrorist, um, either through, uh, let me just put it this way, Oklahoma City bombing is really a, a classic case. John Noe number two, who the FBI knew about, was probably hired by him, was named Hussein al-Hussein. He was an Iraqi former member of the Republican Guard. At the same time that Oklahoma City bombing took place, the United States was trying to justify intervention in Iraq. What better excuse could you have then one of McVeigh's accomplices, Hussein al-Hussein, was an Iraqi. But the government suppressed every knowledge about this guy. And, you know, in other it was handed to him on a silver platter to justify attacking Iraq as a source of terror. But because he worked for the FBI, they couldn't do it. And that's one of the proofs that this man was protected by government because he had to be connected to the actual bombing. Otherwise, why would the government want to protect him? 
Well, Joel, uh, thank you for connecting some uh, dots for us tonight. And, and uh, again, you've pointed out numerous inconsistencies, uh, serious questions revolving the official version of the uh, events of the Boston Marathon bombing, and people can take that uh, as they will and do with it what they will, but uh, very, very disconcerting, obviously, uh, to hear all this. What's uh, what's coming uh, next? The people, we've got a pre-sample issue of this, what we're discussing, and all the evidence and the links that I have to brief by emailing me at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Email Joel at editor at worldaffairsbrief.com. Joel, thanks very much for this. My pleasure, Richard. Joel Skousen. All right. I've linked up to Joel's website on my homepage. Just click on Joel Skousen. It'll take you right there. And my homepage, of course, is Richard Serrett. Dot com and say hello on Twitter at Richard Serrett, S-Y-R-E-T-T. Look forward to hearing from you.